0: Legal Toolkit with Jared Korea. With guest Jeremy Pook, we play The Cost Is Correct. And then Jared reveals a truth so shocking that it will change your entire understanding of human history. So stay tuned for that. But first, your host, Jared Korea.
1: It's time for the Legal Toolkit podcast. Excuse me. Our balls are showing. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I lost my butter pick ages ago. I'm your host, Jared Correa. You're stuck with me because Larry Blyden was not available. He's learning some new musical numbers with an angel band. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the CEO of Gideon Software. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Jeremy Pook, let's preview the topic of law firm sales. Now, I may be going a little backwards here because Jeremy Pook of Senior Attorney Match is gonna come on to talk to you about how you sell a law firm, why you sell a law firm, what can you get for selling a law firm. So I'm gonna steal just the smallest amount of Jeremy's thunder here and tell you that you ain't gonna get a whole lot for your law firm. While tech companies, software companies with subscription services usually sell for something like 10 to 15 times their gross annual revenue, or more in some cases, Law firms are selling at a tidy 1x. Yes, one time what your gross annual revenue is, is what you can expect to receive when you sell your law firm. Not only that, it's going to come out in revenue share over the course of a you know three to five to six year period. So you're not even going to get paid a lump sum. So you better hope to hell that the business continues to function appropriately, at least as well as it had done in the past to get that number. That's probably disheartening if you're listening to this and thinking, ah, I can probably sell my law firm for seven figures, retired to a Caribbean island. So you know why you can't sell your law firm for more than that? And Jeremy will tell you this in a second as well, or actually several seconds. Law firms are really tied to the owner in many cases. I mean, look at the law firms. Like they're named after the attorneys. The attorneys drive the business, usually through referral marketing, which is a very personal thing. As soon as that person walks away, the business is devalued massively and not just walks away. I mean, that attorney could stay on and try and help with the transition, but like they're moving away from the business. It's obvious to everyone. There's going to be a transition could be shedding clients like crazy. If that happens, it's not as safe a bet as say a subscription based software product. So how can you add value to your law firm? Two big things, right? One is brand names. During the pandemic and afterwards, like all these states that had prohibitions against brand names for law firms, those are pretty much all gone now. So you can name your law firm like whatever you want to name it, as long as it's not false or misleading in some way. You got a lot of latitude here. So first thing I would say is if you want your law firm to be worth more when you sell it, be McDonald's, the brand, and not Ronald McDonald's Law Offices. Okay, next thing. You need systems, turnkey systems. When you sell a law firm to somebody, there's only really two pieces of value. One is your name as the attorney and your reputation, which is, again, walking out the door. And then your client list, which, you know, some of those client lists are not well-kept by law firms. It's hard to extract those and get value out of them. So having systems in place is great. Marketing systems... Revenue collection systems, intake systems. If I can come into your law firm and turn on a system as the purchaser, I'm feeling pretty darn good about myself. So think of your law firm as McDonald's. I use that analogy on purpose. Systematize everything. Give people a turnkey system that they can buy into and the price of your law firm is going to go up. How much? I don't know. Jeremy and I talk about it a little bit, but even if it's 2x or 3x rather than 1x, you're doing pretty good. So how do you go about building turnkey systems in your law firm, which are so important? I got three steps for you. Three levels, I should say, each with their own steps. Level one, the noob level, the starter level. Build your list if you haven't done it already. Clients, colleagues, referral sources, leads, all in one place, all segmented. Next, build a client journey. How do leads become clients in law firms? Next, figure out the 10 most common questions you get from clients that will be important later. After that, write down your workflows for each case type that you handle. Then, in an associated fashion, tag every task that you do in your law firm, from administrative to substantive. You're like, yeah, that seems like an unconnected list of things to do correct let's turn to the pro level where we can tie some of this stuff up if you're not already using one get a practice management software which is a relational database for running your law firm where you can implement the workflows that you built ah see it's all coming together now then drill down to a single document repository one source of truth and go paperless Next, adopt a CRM, customer relationship management software, to manage the intake workflow, the client journey that you develop. After that, add engagement tools to your website. Chat, not necessarily intake forms. Scheduling, get a virtual receptionist service to answer the calls if you can't answer them. Build a level of engagement, make that part of your system. After that, create a marketing plan, and focus part of it on content marketing, so you can build a reputation online without having that cost a lot. All right, there's some substance being created here, but what pray tell is the final version of turnkey systems in a law firm? Once you built out all that stuff, it's a hacker level. You want to build automations and nurture campaigns. If you get a law practice management system, if you get a CRM tool. If you got workflows for intaking clients and managing clients, now automate that so your staff doesn't have to do it. So if somebody comes in or replaces your staff or doesn't want to use your staff, or maybe you don't have staff to give them because you've got these automated systems, that's going to be a real value to a modern law firm purchaser. Now you're answering all your phone calls. Track them. Also track all your lead sources. You've got a system for doing this now. You've got CRM. You could use call tracking software. Make sure that all the data is collected in your law firm. And if you haven't done so already, go full cloud. Everything's in the cloud. Everything's flexible. The law firm could exist anywhere, including in your mind. Next, staff up and build profit centers. Because once you get the systems in place, the idea is that the workflows make you as efficient as possible as a law firm. Then, every time you... Hire new staff or utilize staff in the existing context, you want them to be profit centers to the highest extent that that can possibly be. So, if you've got an associate attorney, you want to know what you're paying them and you want to know what the systems you have in place, what they can make for you. Deliver those profit numbers, deliver those profit centers to a law firm purchaser, you're in good shape. And last but not least, you got systems in place, they're running. You need to analyze how effective they are. If you're going to figure out how efficient your staff is, you need to not just track data, but analyze it and utilize KPIs, key performance indicators. Now, imagine your law firm using the right technology, which is not that expensive, building out workflows and managing them, taking in data and analyzing it, you're looking a lot more like a software company rather than Joe Schmo on the corner running a law firm with a painted wooden sign. You know who's a great salesman for the value of data in a legal practice? Willie Lohman? No, Joshua Lennon, who's got you for this week's edition of the Clio Legal Trends Report Minute.
0: What do lawyers with great client relationships all have in common? They use cloud-based legal practice management software to run their law firms. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio, and this is just one finding from our recent legal trends report. There's no getting around it. The fact is, when it comes to client expectations, standards are higher than ever for lawyers. Proof is in the numbers. 88% of lawyers using cloud-based software report good relationships with clients. For firms not in the cloud, barely half of them can say the same. That gap is significant. For more information on how cloud software creates better client relationships, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O dot com forward slash trends.
1: Okay, let's get to the meat in the middle of this legal sandwich. Today's meat is slimy. I'll just leave it at that. It's time to interview our guest. My guest today is Jeremy Pook of Senior Attorney Match. Jeremy, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you?
2: Doing well, Jared.
1: Thanks so much. I think it's a tragedy that people can't see us right now because you have some badass headphones on. I just want everybody to know. So,
2: yeah, we were just saying that you know we were going live on this, Jared. I think we'd get a million hits on TikTok real fast, easily, easily.
1: <laughs> All right, I want to talk to you about what you do because I think it's really interesting. So, you help to broker a law firm sales. So like, how does one get into that? Like that's not, I don't know of a lot of kids who are like six years old at Christmas being like, hey, when I grow up, I wanna be a law firm sales person.
2: So talk to me about the story. Got it, thanks so much, Jared. So first, probably should've gone stage right to business school instead of going (laughs) stage left to law school, okay? So they're a natural born entrepreneur, you know, get into law school. Law school. I don't know how many people have fun in law school. I certainly didn't. You know, I mean, I was ready for right from day one to be done with schooling. And then when I passed <laughs> the bar, I remember going to the lawyer that I was working with at the time. They said, "Jeremy, welcome to the next five years of learning how to become a lawyer." I said, "Oh my goodness, thanks a lot." <laughs> um, and, like what a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's right. I thought, I thought, I thought that nightmare just ended when I actually got the thin. Luckily, the thin is in and, and actually passed the bar, Jerry. gravitated uh, pretty early on as a young lawyer to working with business brokers just have a passion for small businesses generally had an introduction from um, a financial planning colleague as i remember that introduced me to a local business broker here in the boston area where i'm at and helped them to paper their deals on both the purchases and sales of what we call main street businesses 2 million dollars and less I really enjoyed working with the business brokers. You know, my mantra with them was, guys, I'm just not going to get in the way. Okay, let's try to get your deals done, get you guys to closing, and got closer and closer with different business brokers and got onto the board of directors of the New England Business Brokers Association, which was fun, and started observing that their focus was on baby boomers, but they weren't brokering any boomer law firm sales. And that's when the light bulb went off, Jerry.
1: That's super interesting. So you did end up using your legal career to get into the brokerage stuff. Like that was a pathway that you took. Oh, so, yeah.
2: I mean, like, you know, practice law. And, and I still, Jared, full disclosure, I practice a very little bit still. Yeah. I was going to ask you, st-
1: you still do. Okay.
2: Yep. Very little. I'm at, I'm, I'm at um, about 95% senior attorney match and 5% i have been working with a group of people for many years and still represent them. But, you know, it's helpful, of course, when you're brokerage law firm sales to be able to understand and feel the pain of. You know, yes. having to be able to review leases, <laughs> review trusts and estates, little dibble and dabble with, with litigation earlier in my career, too.
1: I know how much it sucks to run a law firm. Trust me.
2: <laughs> but the other
1: thing that's interesting about this is you ended up focusing on a niche, too, which a lot of people end up doing and having success with. So you found that, like, people weren't brokering law firm sales. Wouldn't it be great to have a lawyer to do that? That's really cool.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You know, there's a lot of opportunity out there. So many lawyers, Jared... They don't realize that their practices have value. And when lawyers are thinking of how do you grow your practice, you know, so many of us just think like, okay, let's go to the next networking event. Let's write the next blog. You know, let's, you know, go to dinner, lunch, breakfast, Zoom meetings, of course, now post 2020, but I'm very bullish that, uh, that growth by acquisition is here too.
1: That's super. So like one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about this, like I'm sure there are lawyers out there who are saying to themselves, wait a second, you can sell a law firm? That's a thing. So like, how much of this for you is education also to let people know like, hey, this business you own is an asset. Just because it's a law firm, that doesn't change the equation.
2: Yeah, it's a lot of education. And that's why as senior attorney match has been growing. It dawned on me a couple of years ago that we needed to pivot and offer two types of services. So the first type of services that we do is we design succession plans for our clients. And it starts with what we call a next yeah. step workshop. So it's a Zoom workshop and we, and we meet with lawyers and they ask that question like, is it really worth something? Like who would buy it? What is it worth? What's the market for it? And we help our clients realize that yes, there's value. Yes, there are willing buyers out there. And we help them design what it would look like. Who's the right buyer? Is it an internal person? lawyer at your firm or someone you could recruit in, or is there a growing firm, a third-party law firm that's looking to grow by acquisition? And once we finish that design phase and people realize that they have value, we help point out where the value points are in the practice, then we can actually go to market. Previously, I was going to market too soon, actually, because we didn't, even I didn't know, I didn't want to sound badly, mm-hmm. but I, I, I was bringing people to market without doing the appropriate research and learning more about what's the value proposition that, uh, that each of our clients and, and the lawyers don't even realize necessarily the value proposition that they present to buyers.
1: I think that's interesting in the sense that like, you're right, there are two sides to this equation, right? You got somebody who's buying the firm and they got somebody who's selling the firm and they need a succession plan. So to what extent does that succession plan involve like continuing to work for the firm as the transition happens? Because a lot of law firms as you know, it's like based on the attorney's personality, their referral network word of mouth that's developed and like cutting that person off immediately is not necessarily the best idea. So that succession plan I'm assuming involves like working with the new owner and then transitioning out eventually.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. Okay. And the good news for lawyers is, I mean, so many lawyers, Jared, like, they love practicing law or they love s- aspects of it. You know, maybe not yeah. everything, yeah. They love something. It's, <laughs> it's intellectually stimulating. I mean, so many of our clients that we speak with, they say like, listen, I don't play bridge. I-, I like to golf, but I couldn't golf every day. You know, I like coming into the office. I like interacting with clients or I like writing briefs or I like writing estate plans. I just can't stand, let's say, managing the office. So to your point, you're exactly right. So many law firms, the value of the firm is the personal goodwill of the selling attorney or the or the leading partners of a firm. And we're calling this law firm sales 1.0, right? In law firm sales 1.0, for the selling lawyer or law firm to derive the value from their practice, they need to transition their clients and referral sources to the firm that they join, whether that's an internal sale. Or an external one because these are not turnkey transactions. We're not we're not selling a subway, a Dunkin' franchise, yeah. you know, or some yeah. other kind of widgets based business. We're selling a business where the clients and referral sources know the senior attorney who's practiced and has been their lawyer or their referral source often for like a generation, if not at least years and decades. Um, right. So it's very important to transition over. Typically, Jared. A couple of years, but the beautiful thing is, and like you and I are stuck here in the Northeast right now, and like winter is a couple of days away, right? Hey, it's here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it feels it was like 19 it degrees is here. yesterday. Yeah, go you ahead. Know? But in the Zoom world, <laughs> you know, when you're no longer stuck with having to run and manage the office and you're transitioning clients, you can be in Florida, you can be in California, you can be overseas, work on matters on your laptop, meet with clients on Zoom, transition clients. To new lawyers um, back at yeah. the firm that 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 our clients join. So, just out of curiosity, how do you
1: see this usually going? Is it an internal sale or an external sale? Because I think it, I'm guessing it would be fairly hard to like find somebody, bring them into the firm, groom them, because there's a timing component too, right? You don't want to have that person come in too early because they might
2: get frustrated, or come in too late, right? So we look at internal sales. We call that the potential option. Uh, when okay. we're doing the design and then we look at external joining a third party firm is really the preferred option. And you put your finger on, you know, one reasons why it's only, um, a potential option. That is, if you're trying to recruit someone in, first of all, good luck in today's market, right? It's really right. hard <laughs> to recruit talented people. Yeah. And, and that I said before that, you know, I should have gone stage right to business school versus stage left to law school. But most lawyers do go stage left because they're just, they're not entrepreneurial. They don't want to run a business. So, the internal option is often the potential option because what the senior attorney, what the seller is looking to do is turn to his or her employees, key employees, and say, You've been my key employee for many years. And how would you like to now be the business owner? And often they will say, Oh, well, how did the Red Sox do last night? Yeah, you know, they just changed the conversation because they really don't want to yeah. purchase a yeah. law practice and they can't afford too often either.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about two things. Yeah. Like, w- first, I want to know, like, how do law firms get priced? Because I-, I would guess that you've got lawyers out there who have a really high opinion of their law firms and they think it's going to sell probably like a tech company that's selling a 10 or 12X. That doesn't happen in law firm sales, right? The numbers are lower.
2: The numbers are lower for now and that, that law firm sales 1.0 that I mentioned to you where it's so dependent on the personal goodwill of the senior attorney or the senior attorney-led firm, we're not putting values on law firms, Jared. It's just too—it's mm. too complicated, and the what-if factor that if something happens to your key person, right? Your key person is often Attorney Jones that has practiced. Let's let's choose estate planning for a moment, and Attorney Jones may be putting up a million dollars in revenues a year from from his estate planning practice, because he's still generating new estate plans, clients are passing away. So he's doing Mm. the probate and trust admins. Something happens to attorney Jones, there's going to be absolute client flight. So a buyer's really wary to pay upfront money, despite the fact that he's regularly showing, let's say a million dollars in revenues, even as importantly, if not more importantly, banks will not lend on it, right? Because a bank doesn't know if those revenues are going to continue. And the last time- Anybody went into a law office, good luck finding any assets of any significant value, right? Uh, for them yes. to put financing statements on. So, the way that we structure the value of law practices is via an earnout. Our clients, when they're yeah. selling, going back to value proposition, their value proposition to a buyer is say, I have a million dollar practice in this example. I will deliver my clients to you by working here for a couple of years and transitioning them. We call it trust transfer, transfer the trust of the clients to the buying firm. Buying yeah. firm, will you pay me, the seller, a percentage of the revenues that come in that are attributable to my clients and referral sources? Buyers love it, low risk for buyers. Sellers, it's a great way to monetize. To your question, like, what does that mean in terms of how much value we're seeing in the marketplace, Jared, somewhere in the range of a 1x of gross revenues.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's not too surprising with the business model.
2: Just out of curiosity, you ever see anybody
1: come in with a lump sum and be like, hey, I'm going to buy the law firm for X? Do big firms do that when they acquire small firms? Yeah, go ahead.
2: So um, I think we're going to see more of it in what we call law firms 2.0, which is your world, Jared.
1: I'm already in 2.0.
2: Exciting. All right. Thank I think you. you are in terms of uh, in terms of <laughs> when firms are more digitized when people when clients are coming to firms not just because hey I turn I heard Attorney Jones is the best estate planner in my community hence I want to meet with Attorney Jones versus let's say we've got the Atlantic Estate Planning Firm okay yeah, and, and, yeah. And they brand names are- trade names exactly so, so let me ask your question on the lump sum. So the reason why we're not seeing lump sum is because of risk in law firm sales 1.0, personal goodwill for someone like Attorney Jones and the fact that a bank won't lend on it. Okay, yeah. the ex- yep. here's an exception to it is when there are certain firms that do have repeat customers, repeat clients. So think to ourselves like a condo firm or mm-hmm. that is condo, it represents a number of condo associations. Right yes. and year in year out, they're getting retainers paid by those associations. There's firms like that, Jared, and they'll represent hundreds of associations. You know, uh, collections agencies. You represent Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Visa, right. Mastercard. You know, despite wherever the economy is, you know that there's going to be certain amounts of revenue coming into those collections firms. But somebody like Attorney Jones, in our example, the estate planning attorney, much harder for lump sum.
1: Yeah, and I think like. The point is well taken that if you're going to buy a business like that, where there's so much trust transfer, as you talked about, you got to have that person involved at least to some level for a little while to make that transfer possible. What do you think about non-law firm buyers of law firms? Maybe this is law firms 3.0, right? But like, you've got alternative business structures happening in some states now. That's probably going to come to more states across the US. In 10 years, that might be available in like most jurisdictions. So do you see potentially like companies coming in and buying law firms like a LegalZoom or a
2: Clio or somebody like that? Is that on your radar? So- I'll tell you personally, it's not on my radar because I'm skeptical that it's that it's going to happen. Because, oh, okay, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Okay, so I'm skeptical that it's going to happen and maybe I'm going to hold out. We can go back to, to this podcast five years from now, 10 years from now, and I'll be like, <laughs> Jeremy, you know, egg on your face, you know, for- Or on mine, know, for, we'll for, see is <laughs> right. <laughs> for predicting you're going to have non-lawyer owners of law firms. My rationale behind that is the lawyer-client relationship and that when you bring in- non-lawyer owners of law firms and that you have non-lawyers that are sticking their nose into the profitability of the lawyer client relationship i think Mm -hmm. that that's going to result that would result in my opinion with reducing the fiduciary relationship nature of the lawyer client relationship let's play out your hypothetical though let's assume that that you could segregate the two okay let the lawyer's lawyer and Mm -hmm. Let non-lawyer money come in and would that make the the law industry a heck of a lot more efficient? Will we have the equivalent of each and our block for estate planning? Okay. Will it make law and accessing legal assistance a heck of a lot more affordable? Okay. I'm picking a lot on estate planning, but I work with a lot of estate planners. And I know- That makes sense as a
1: model that can be productized
2: as well. But you know, and I know, like the cost of a basic estate plan can be ranging from like $1,000 to like $5,000. And sometimes there's not, I don't want to knock the estate planners out there, Jared. There may not be all that much of a substantive difference. Right. Okay. right. (laughs) And if you bring in the H&R block of estate planning, well, the average American is going to be able to get a will, a trust, a healthcare proxy, a durable power of attorney, for probably in that thousand dollar range, if not less, because they're just gonna because private money is gonna figure out how to make it more efficient.
1: Right. Yes, absolutely. All right, let's end on this topic. You kind of alluded to this before. I just want to put a bow on this. Lawyers right now who are maybe thinking of selling their law firm at some point down the line, what should they be doing like today to maximize the value of that asset? And you can go ahead and tell me like this is a model for somebody who's going to retire five years from now versus 30 years from now. I'm sure there's a difference. So feel
2: free to riff on that and then we'll finish up this part of the interview. Terrific. So let's talk about the five years, maybe not 30, but let's go out like 15 years. Okay. Yeah, works. The lawyer who's five years out, number one priority is contact, first of all, someone like yourself from Red Cave, okay? Mm-hmm. And organize your client list, okay? You right. and I have talked about this a bunch of times. Yeah the biggest asset that lawyers are sitting on are their client lists. Okay. Anytime I get into a meeting and talk with lawyers about the value of their business and this law firm sales 1.0, where it's based upon the client list and the referral source list, we can no longer rely upon letting dust accumulate on your clients and maybe, maybe send out a Christmas card, you know, once a year. In a LinkedIn world, a Facebook world, a Clio world, like you've like you you know, like you've mentioned, you can take your clients, put them into a CRM. If we don't know CRM, I'm going to give it away. We Google it. Okay. Um, <laughs> or call Jared. Yeah. That's a light lift. You can Google CRM. Yep. And start communicating and connecting with your clients and referral sources, because that is the key to monetizing your practice in law firm sales 1.0 when firms will be paying based upon the revenues that come in from your clients with pro sources. Connect with your clients. And yeah. this is always a hard message, Jared, for those people that are five years out, but really consider that now's the time to sell. I'm not saying that as a broker. I'm saying it because I see post 2020, and you see it too, that younger firms are digitally marketing a heck of a yes. lot smarter than senior attorneys and you have your clients and referral sources now, they are going to catch up with you and beat you to new clients. It's already happening. So consider selling in the short term, continue to practice, monetize your practice while continuing to practice instead of waiting too long and your clients diminish. Now, the lawyer that's 15 years out, okay? Same advice, okay? But the difference is develop your brand, okay? Develop a digital presence. If your Attorney Jones and they're coming to you, try to make sure that they're not just coming to you because they heard about you from your their friends, their their neighbor, their coworker, establish a presence on Google. Now I'm regularly saying, and I'm far from unique, I think that Uncle Google, I think, is the number one referral source for lawyers in America. Yeah, And that's gonna continue. Oh, yeah. Just to add on to that, and I'll just say, cause we alluded to it before, but law firm sales 2.0. In 2.0, yes. there will be fixed price and fixed price and banks will come in when lawyers and law firms can look at their data analytics and show we have real brand value, we have real digital value in the marketplace, a bank can rely upon that and lend to a buyer, whether that's a law firm or maybe Mm. even, Jared, I'm wrong, egg on face, non-lawyer owners, you know, will come in and look at that data and pay real money at a closing table for law firms. Oh man,
1: from your mouth to God's ear.
2: Um, That was super enlightening.
1: Can you hang on for the last segment, Jeremy? Absolutely. Okay. So we'll take one final sponsor break everybody so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the always entertaining rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours. Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need accessible anywhere trust in general accounting is built in so you don't need quickbooks cosmolex's money finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money that's messy lower cost better business and less frustration yes please it's all built in with cosmolex free trial and take 20 percent off your first year at cosmolex.com Visit gat.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Welcome, everyone, to the rear end of the legal toolkit. That's right, it's the Rump Roast. It's a grab bag of short-form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. Today, I want to play a little game I'm calling The cost is correct, which is definitely not based on any television game show you've ever heard of. So here's how it works. Jeremy, you price law firms. So I want to see how good you are at pricing some other things. I'm going to tell you how we play. So I'm going to name an item and a price. And you can tell me if it's the exact price, if it's too low, or if it's too high. And if it's too high, you can even bid a dollar. Okay, I fucking base this on the prices right. So sue me. No way. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> All right, Jeremy. You ready? I'm ready. Now, the twist is like we're going to go back to the future. Because as anyone who listens to this podcast knows, I live in the past, precisely 1993. So let's talk about historical items and price those. Okay. Number one, Jeremy, the base price of the 1982 Chevrolet Chevette. I'm going to give you the number, $5,898. Is that too high, too low, or the exact price?
2: Can I, can I like mimic what the crowd would be doing behind me at this point too, Jared?
1: Yes, you could. Too low, Please do. Too
2: low. Too low. Too hard. All right.
1: Yes, that would be great if you All could right, do got that. It, got it. It,
2: Jared, too high. Too high at that price.
1: What do you think it is? Just out of curiosity.
2: So, remind me again. This was a Chevy,
1: Chevrolet Chevette, which my family once had, actually. Yep. The worst car in the history 1982, of cars. Right. Nineteen eighty-two is the first year that. Thirty-nine they came ninety-five. Out that. Oh, that's a good guess. But that was the exact price: six thousand for a Chevy. Oh, really?
2: Chevette. Wow.
0: Okay. Which I think
1: is like really high, given how shitty a car it was. <laughs> I hated that car. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right here we go the original pet rock i had one of these man, man. came out in 1975 hey three dollars high low exact
2: <laughs> i'm not going easy on you yeah that, that that's a stumper <laughs> that is a real that is a real that's stumper, a hard one because three dollars oh, yeah. sounds fair that sounds right where it should be i think it came in a little lower though i'm gonna go too high again Pet rock,
1: four dollars. Oh, that price geez, was low. I'm
2: over two, Jared.
1: Well, you know what's crazy It's like I was reading up on this before we started. Like the rocks themselves, that they put in, it cost a penny
2: for the yeah, rock. I bet. Yeah, they sent some kid from like that. that was like the, Like the owner's kids probably says to go on the beach and grab them or something.
1: Okay, right, right. And then the straw like is negligible. It's just the packaging. So they're probably killing it at four dollars a pet rock.
2: Yeah, All they right. would have done well in Shark Tank 1975. Yeah. You, so you've got plenty
1: of time to redeem
2: yourself. I'll All right, some let's more hope so. You.
1: The average price of an American home in 1963.
2: $22,000. High, low, exact. All right, Jared, I hope I'm redeeming myself here. I should ask the crowd again. <laughs> yeah, get too some help. Low, too, hard, too low, too low, too I'm going against the crowd, I'm going exact.
1: Uh, it's 18000 18000 just So, you know, adjusted for inflation, only $145,000. Not bad. Like, that would be a massive deal in today's marketplace. You know, it's
2: amazing when you see, like, parents, right, that have been in the same home for 50 years, yeah. you know, what their homes and you know have become. Yes, yeah, sitting on a ton of equity. This is a tough one. This is proving to be a lot harder.
1: I don't like to make it easy on people. All right, so we've got a few more here. The first compact disc... Was sold in 1982, the first commercially sold compact disc. 16 bucks, High, low, exact. I had a number of CDs back in the day. I don't know about you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And cassette tapes. But when, and they, first tapes. Came, when they first came out, I gotta think there was a premium price on that. You uh, know, I mean, there's like cassette tapes which just sucked to like have to fast forward and rewind. <laughs> and like, of course the damn thing would like go off the reel sometimes and stuff like that. And the CD was just beautiful, right? You could just skip ahead and Sound press Sound quality was tremendous. And it yeah. looked good, and it looked good too, right? It just like looked awesome. like your whole back to the future thing. It looked like we had like, you know, hit Mars or something with that. <laughs> I think you're thinking exact. in the right direction here. I'm go. I gotta go exact.
1: Okay, you said there was a premium for CDs. I did in say. Oh, you give me
2: a hint here. All right, too low, <laughs>
1: too low, too low. Twenty <laughs> Thank bucks. Thank you, Jared. Twenty dollars for the original yeah. CD. All right, now, got it. Do you know what the first CD that was sold was? There's an interesting story
2: behind this. Uh, well, um, I'm assuming it's music oriented, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And yes. what was the year? Popular music. First CD sold in 1982.
2: 1982. Are the Jackson Five still around at that oh, point?
1: That's a good guess. Well, well so it's in, okay. So that's too hard to. I uh, wouldn't expect okay. you to guess that. Billy Joel's Fifty Second Street was uh, the first CD, and so there are actually fifty CDs that came out at the same time. And Fifty Second Street was just the one they gave the first number to in the catalog. It was number one. But what's interesting is the Fifty Second Street came out in nineteen seventy eight, yeah. and Billy Joel had a new album out in eighty two which I think was uh, the Nylon Curtain album. And that's not the one they sold. So pretty interesting history of the CD. All right, I got a few more for you. All right, next. Help me get
2: on the board on that one.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm wor- we can do hints, I'm working with hints. Okay, <laughs> the Altair 8800 is often referred to as the first personal computer that yes. came out in 1974. Was the price $400, high, low, exact, $400.
2: All right, 1974 computer. If that's not too low, then, then I'm really doing terrible on this game show. I'm going too low on that one. Um, it's high. <laughs> what? For a computer? It,
1: yeah, listen to this. It was $297 for that device.
2: And what could it do? Would you wait 10 hours to get between like keystrokes (laughs) or something?
1: Yeah, it probably didn't do anything. It's probably a glorified (laughs) word processor. I don't own one. So it was $295. But if you wanted to go up a level and buy the case that came with it, $395. Uh, So, okay. Pretty good deal. All right. That sounds like two more. for For that old Commodore. Wow. Okay. Two more. The original Monopoly game came out in 1935. Wow. What did it cost? $1.50. One dollar and fifty cents. Low high. Exact. Boy, Jared,
2: this has been brutal for me. <laughs> I'm going I'm, that sounds right. You, I guess. You don't I'll have
1: the me. worst performance in the history of the Rump so don't feel bad about $1. that. One
2: dollar and fifty cents. I gotta go with that one's gotta be exact.
1: It is low. Two dollars. Two dollars. For the and that, original really, 19, game. Th- 19, seems th- like, that seems pricey. That does. For nineteen thirty five. Yeah. Because that's like depression depression yeah exactly you gotta play monopoly i got one more for you last one okay all right the mclaren p1 which i definitely don't have in my driveway production car available until 2015 (laughs) they don't make these in production anymore what was the price of that car off the production line 1.2 million
2: low high exact all right so full disclosure i have no idea what that is it's it's
1: it's 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 a fancy sports car
2: Okay, got it's it. Like,
1: imagine, like, probably the fanciest sports car that you could buy.
2: All right. And, and the, okay. And the price was $1.2 million. All right.
1: All right. Google this when we're done. My son loves this but car. I want to
2: search for a lawyer. I'll go to Uncle go Google. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, absolutely. But I will not, I will not cheat on your show, Jared. <laughs> I'm going too low.
1: It is exact. Oh, $1.2 million. Geez.
2: So I got like, One half answer right on this whole show.
1: I I had fun. I had
2: fun. These are hard questions.
1: Like, I didn't throw you any softballs. No. Thank you for coming on, though. This was fun. Absolutely. All the best, Jared. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. If you want to find out more about Jeremy Pook and Senior Attorney Match, visit SeniorAttorneyMatch.com. That's SeniorAttorneyMatch.com. Now for those of you listening in Donkeyville, Massachusetts, and the Patriots are playing right now like it's Donkeyville, Massachusetts, I've got a great Spotify playlist for you. Since we talked about pricing law firms in this episode, all of these songs have an amount of currency in the titles. Check it out. Now I've run out of time today, so I won't be able to discuss my theory on who built the pyramids. Spoiler alert, it was the fucking aliens, obviously. This is Jared Korea, reminding you not to eat berries that you find in the forest the strong likelihood is that they'll taste like burning.